ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Good afternoon. Selena Green with you today, taking you right through until one o'clock. Great to have you on board The Country Hour. Well, the Senate has today passed the federal government's changes to extend the Murray-Darling Basin plan. We'll uh, cover off that more in a moment. And you will hear from someone who's been campaigning in favour of the buybacks that are now allowed under the new bill. And also in this next half an hour, virtual livestock fencing could soon be a reality in South Australia. It's not allowed here at present, but in a moment you are going to meet a farmer who is trialling it. It doesn't take cattle very long to learn the virtual fencing algorithm. Before we put them out into any virtual fencing scenario out in a paddock, we run a small training period first in a smaller paddock, which we set up just a basic virtual fence to allow them to learn the association between the audio and the pulse, which tells them where the is. So within sort of one to three days, depending on the animal, you tend to see them learn. More on that to come. Don't forget my talkback number today, if you'd like to get in touch, is 1300 222 891 or send me a text at any time on 0467 922 891. Well, yes, the Senate has passed the federal government's changes to extend the Murray-Darling Basin plan. Now, the changes remove a cap on the amount of water that can be purchased from farmers and ensures new water-saving infrastructure projects can be delivered to meet environmental targets. The federal opposition, farm groups and some regional councils have argued that buybacks decimate regional communities by making less water available for farming. Federal Water Minister Tanya Plibersek addressed the media at Parliament House a short time ago and was asked when the buybacks could commence. As you know, we're already in the market for voluntary water purchase for another part of the plan and uh, we'll soon be concluding that first tender. Uh, We will uh, actually, as I've said multiple times, voluntary water purchase is only one part of this plan. (laughs) I made it rain and then the umbrellas magically appear. Um, Voluntary water purchase is one part of this plan. We'll be continuing to work with states and territories on vital water-saving infrastructure. Uh, We'll continue to look at other options for recovering water, but we will... Uh, We have always said a voluntary water purchase will be part of delivering the plan and we'll look at that next year. That is Tanya Plibersek addressing the media a short time ago. That media conference was taking place in the rain, as you might have been able to hear. It was cut short as a division was called in the Parliament. But these changes to the Murray-Darling plan reintroduce voluntary water buybacks. And over recent weeks, we've heard concerns uh, for those who are both uh, opposed and in favour of these buybacks. Researcher with the Australia Institute and Menindee local Kate McBride, she says a new campaign advocating for water buybacks is to prove that there is enough support for the scheme. So often we are seeing this argument around voluntary buybacks hijacked by big lobby groups. And we wanted to show that there are farmers and irrigators that actually back buybacks. And there's a lot of people out there. Is a coalition of graziers and irrigators speaking in favour of water buybacks fairly unprecedented? Yeah, I think it's a 
aside of the argument that we haven't heard, unfortunately, we are seeing irrigators stand up and say that they support buybacks. The Australian government went out to tender for water buybacks a couple of months ago, and they actually had double the amount of interest than they thought um, they had. So they, they were sort of oversupplied, essentially, which means that there are people that want to sell their water licence out there. And what this ad campaign's argument is, is you should have the freedom to do what you want with your water. Now, 63% of regional Australians support the policy to reintroduce voluntary water buybacks under the Basin Plan. So, you know, that's most regional Australians. Unfortunately, we're hearing from the vocal minority saying how bad they are, but I don't think anyone should let politics or lobby groups dictate who they can and can't sell their water licence to. So it's a really important side of it to get it out there. Of course, buybacks are the cheapest and most efficient way to get water back into our river system. Um, and particularly for the Darling Barker River system, you know, our river needs more flows coming down the river. We are seeing over-extraction occur in the Northern Basin and buybacks are the best way to actually try and get our river healthy again. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important that we're seeing people team up and sort of get behind this um, and really excited to be a part of it. How flexible should these buybacks be for graziers? So water buybacks are totally voluntary and how it works is the government of the day says we're willing to buy some water and then it's up to the irrigator or the water licence holder to say, okay, I'll sell this much of my licence for this much money and then it goes back to the department and the department works out whether that's value for money or not value for money. So it's totally open and transparent. It's really important Um, and farmers should have that right too. Now, if they don't want to sell their licence, they do not have to put a tender in for that process. And I think that's the thing. Is this is total freedom for them to be involved if they want, to not be involved if they don't want to. And it gives farmers and irrigators flexibility as well with their water licence. I mean, there's certain people who might be ready to retire and step away from it, and they want to be able to sell their water licence to the government to see that water t- returned back to the environment, sort of protect our Murray-Darling going into a drier future. Just looking onto the irrigator side of things, New South Wales Irrigator Council CEO Claire Miller said that this is not a win for the environment as it does not deliver what the river actually needs, fish passages, carp management, fish habitat restoration and relaxing the restraints will deliver real environmental outcomes, not unnecessarily buying back more water that can't be delivered. What would your response be to that? I think it's pretty rich coming from the irrigators now trying to oppose constraints and these other sort of complementary measures. And that's what these are. So fish passage is really important, but it's known as a complementary measure. And in its very name, we can tell that complementary means in complement or like so it complements the water recovery. Now, to put it all into perspective, when the basin plan was being formulated, science told us that we needed 7,500 gigalitres of water returned to the environment to keep it healthy. Now, because of politics, that lobby groups like the Irrigators Council, that got whittled right down to sort of 3,200 gigalitres, so less than half of what the environment actually needed. Now, what they're trying to do now is whittle it down even further so the environment doesn't even get that much, and it's really disappointing from them to continue these arguments. Water recovery is so important, and implementing these other measures that can complement that is equally important and we want to see it and both should be supported moving forward as we implement the Basin Plan. There's a lot of small, like, remote irrigating communities that are opposed to these buybacks. How is that going to impact their businesses? 
Unfortunately, I think what we're seeing is the Irrigators Council and National Farmers Federation spin this rhetoric. What we know as regional Australians is we are experiencing regional decline. Communities that have buybacks and haven't had buybacks are witnessing regional decline. And what they are doing is distracting from the actual issues that our communities are facing. They are trying to point the finger at voluntary buybacks and that simply is totally wrong and out of touch. And I think it's, it's really undermining the issues that we are having because it's distracting from the fact that all communities are experiencing these issues. That's researcher with the Australia Institute and Menindee local Kate McBride, and she was speaking there to Lily McEwer. It is 13 minutes past 12. Well, a grazing family in the far north is hoping a trial on their property could see more virtual fencing allowed here in South Australia. Jake and Francesca Fennell from Wintina Station near Coobapiti worked with Megan Willis from Sardi and saw the benefits of rotating stock regularly around paddocks. Now, if virtual fencing did come in, it would require changes to the Animal Welfare Act of 1995, which currently does not permit the use of these devices here in South Australia, except for approved research, such as this trial you're about to hear more about. Well, Megan Willis explains how the trial works and what the plans for the future are. We had 100 heifers up at Winterna Station uh, and we put collars on them um, after my in April of this year Uh, and what we did was run them out in a 45 kilometre square paddock and basically rotated them around so gave them access to particular areas within the paddock um, that Jake and Frankie thought were sort of higher producing and could handle more animals um, and rested parts of the paddock that were lower producing and um, didn't quite have the same capacity to grow pasture so we were able to control the location of the animals using virtual fencing, which was um, a pretty cool thing to be able to demonstrate. Uh, and we, we took measures um, on temperament and live weight and interactions with the virtual fence as well and saw no negative impacts on the animals and really good containment using the virtual fencing. Did it take the, the heifers long to sort of get used to the, the fencing and, and the collars? No, it doesn't take cattle very long to learn the virtual fencing algorithm. Um, Before we put them out into any virtual fencing scenario out in a paddock, we run a small training period first in a smaller paddock, which we set up just a basic virtual fence to allow them to learn the association between the audio and the pulse, which tells them where the fence is. So within sort of one to three days, depending on the animal, you tend to see them learn. And the Winterner cattle learn very quickly and very effectively because they have a beautiful temperament. Um, Jake and Frankie have put a lot of effort into the temperament of their cattle. So they learned really quickly and responded really well. So what are you hoping can come from this trial moving forward now, Megan? Uh, Moving forward from this trial, we're just hoping that we've been able to demonstrate virtual fencing as a tool for pastoralists. Given that it is quite tricky to manage the location of stock up there and to rest paddocks if that's something that that people want to do. So we're hoping that we've demonstrated that capability and we're hoping that we're able to do some further research up in that region to, to test virtual fencing in a range of scenarios because a lot of the demand we see for virtual fencing in South Australia comes from the pastoral zone. So we just want to raise awareness that there is a tool that could become available for producers to use. Megan, 
with the Struan Research Centre based in, in the southeast, is there farmers down that way that are also keen to, to look at something like this? And how does it differ between maybe what you're doing in the pastoral areas to somewhere like the, the southeast? Yeah, so there is um, a bit of demand for virtual fencing across different regions of South Australia and into Victoria as well. We probably see less demand in the southeast given the need is lower down here. Electric fencing works quite well for what people want to do down here and it's relatively cheap um, and the size of our properties and the type of grazing that we do, the demand is less. There is some demand for wanting to uh, more intensively graze animals without having to worry about electric fencing and to protect environmentally sensitive areas on farm as well. But the, the true demand is really coming from the pastoral zones, both sheep and cattle, particularly the far north and the Eyre Peninsula, we see a lot of demand. And within the dairy industry as well, um, so that's probably where it will come into play in the southeast and higher rainfall areas is use within um, pasture-based dairy enterprises. And would you classify this, this trial as a success or you've been able to get what you, you wanted from this trial? Yeah, I would say that the Winterner trial has been a huge success. Jake and Frankie have been really great to work with and their place is a perfect trial site, which was really, really beneficial. I think the trial has been a huge success. We achieved what we wanted to achieve and the aims were met um, and we were able to demonstrate a really cool emerging technology. Senior Research Officer with Sadi Megan Willis. Francesca Fennell from Wintina Station says it was great to be a part of the trial and she's hoping that more can be done to use it to help with fencing on the property. Well, we've seen how good rotating cattle is and splitting our property into smaller paddocks would be quite a big job um, and using virtual fencing would allow us to do this so it piques our interest, I suppose. What benefits did you see as part of the trial? Uh, just that it actually worked, like the cattle stayed in the areas we put them in. We created like a virtual fence and laneway so that the cattle were, were just waiting for us when we went to muster them. Have you had issues with fencing um, before on the property? Uh, not really issues. Well, we do we do have a lot of feral camels smashing fences. But no, not really any issues. Just it's we've got a lot of fencing to do and it's a big cost. So looking at this um, trial, would it be worthwhile doing from, from testing this out? And do those costs sort of match up with, with what you would have with, um, yeah, you know, the, the normal style of fencing? Everyone's situation will be different and you'd have to work out the cost over a long-term basis between installing a permanent fence versus using a virtual fence and they'd have to be weighed up against each other. But I don't think we'll know until like more people start using them and then the I think the cost will come down. Do you think it should be available to everyone in, in South Australia? Yes, absolutely. Our cattle are our biggest investment and what we get our income from. And we were concerned like how they would react and perform with the collars being on, but they had no no ill effects, they all gained weight and everyone carried on as normal and we saw it was no different to having a management tag playing. And there was no change in the temperament and the collar uses less power than an electric fence and electric fences are allowed everywhere and I think these are a great alternative to be able to use. You said there that the animals reacted really well to it. What, what did you notice throughout the, the whole trial of, you know, sort of from the start to the finish um, of, of how they were reacting to it? Uh, when we first put the collars on, they, you know, just shook their head a little bit 
because they've got something dangling around the neck which they wouldn't normally have. Um, within a few seconds of them coming out of the crush, they were back down, head grazing or, you know, wandering around the yard, no issues. Um, they, knowing we temperament scored everything like before and after and there was no change in the temperament. It was, there's no change really. Um, we did have some when there was a storm. A few went through, like a, a few did escape the fence, like the virtual fence, but by the morning they'd come back in. And I think that's, you know, just with any, as with any normal castle, they could just blow over a fence if there was, you know, something scared them. Do you think it was definitely worth worth doing and being a part of this trial? Yeah, I think so. I don't like, you know, people don't do these things and there'd be, be no change. And I don't understand why there is a legislation against it when it's, there's no animal welfare issues. We're very like, grateful to be a part of it, that people are making an effort to pass these things through. That's Francesca Fennell there from Wintina Station near Cooper Pedy, and she was speaking to Brooke Nindorf. You're listening to Selena Green on ABC Radio South Australia and Broken Hill. Time to find out what happened at the Mount Compass cattle market now to give you an update. Joined by John Traeger. Good afternoon, John. Good afternoon. Quality was fair to very good as Aces offered 528 live weight and open oxen cattle. A total of 296 steers, 140 heifers and 78 cows made up the bulk of the offering with some outstanding pens on offer in most classes. Competition was good from the usual trade and process of buyers with feeders and restockers more active this week. The market trend followed recent interstate sales with all classes posting some substantial price rises. Vila steers and heifers lifted 20 to 30 cents as steers sold from 200 to 275 cents and heifers 170 to 229 cents. Yearling steers rose by 30 to 50 cents as they sold from 180 to 271 cents as yearling heifers posted a 20 to 30 cent lift to sell from 180 to 231 cents. Manufacturing steers gained 5 to 10 cents as they sold from 201 to 237 cents as grown steers lifted 20 cents to sell from 175 to 250 cents. Grown heifers posted a similar rise and they sold from 173 to 230 cents a kilo. Light cows gained up to 30 cents as dairy types sold from 60 to 163 cents and beef types 130 to 200 cents a kilo. Heavy cows lifted 20 to 25 cents as dairy types sold from 80 to 197 cents and beef types 165 to 233 cents a kilo. Bulls also sold 20 to 25 cents a kilo dearer as light bulls sold from 150 to 227 cents and heavy bulls 185 to 223 cents a kilo. This is John Traeger at the Southern Livestock Exchange at Mount Compass for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service and the Country Hour. Thanks, John. John Traeger there with those results from Mount Compass. Interesting to hear some of those numbers there. Have things hit the bottom and started to bounce back? I certainly hope that's the case. You're with Selena Green on the Country Hour today. It has just gone on 24 minutes past 12. Let's head off to the Weather Bureau now. Our forecaster at the Bureau today is Hannah Marsh. Hello, Hannah. Good afternoon, Selena. What's going on across the state on the Thursday? Well, we did have some cloud over the south of the state this morning and a stable southeasterly airflow. This is mainly cleared except for over uh, southern parts of 
Eyre Peninsula and also parts of the southeast as well. Uh, but we also have some mid-level cloud about the west and north of the state associated with a low-pressure trough. And we're seeing um, persistent thunderstorms through the northwest of the state. And that was... Uh, it started yesterday afternoon, has continued overnight and like I said, we are still seeing those thunderstorms up in that area. We are expecting those thunderstorms gradually to track uh, further to the east to be confined to the northeast pastoral district by this time tomorrow and then uh, continuing to clear to the northeast. Also with that cloud in the south uh, this morning, we did see some isolated light spots of uh, showers this will be similar again tomorrow where we could see those isolated light showers about southern coasts and ranges. Uh, having a look at some of the temperatures that we've made it up to so far today. It's been up to 25 degrees at Sejuna, 19 at Port Lincoln, 23 at Wyala, 27 so far at Port Pirie, 27 at Cooper Pedy, 26 at Woomera, uh, 25 at Renmark, 23 at Clare. 24 at Mount Barker, at 20 at High Marshall Island, 21 at Kingscote and 23 at Mount Gambier. Then tomorrow we're really expecting the temperatures to be pretty similar. We're looking at cool to mild temperatures uh, near the coast again. They were grey to warm inland and hot in the far north. Then on Saturday, we're generally looking at a dry and mostly sunny day. Temperatures still are in that mild range as uh, further south, but as we head further north, it does start heading to those warm to hot temperatures and even very hot in the far west of the state. Then on Monday, uh, the possibility of seeing a thunderstorm starts to develop in the far northwest of the state. We do, sorry, on uh, Sunday, we are looking at uh, further dry conditions with uh, the winds tending northerly. We'll start seeing those hotter temperatures uh, pushing further south. Then on Monday, we are looking at mostly dry conditions other than those possible thunderstorms in the far northwest. Temperatures really are very hot in the north and west and just hot elsewhere with those uh, moderate northerly winds. We will start to see a trough develop about the southwest of the state and push over southern coasts as well. So that will result in milder temperatures, particularly as we start to head into uh, the middle part of next week, but still remaining very hot further inland. In terms of uh, the amount of rainfall that we could expect this week, uh, majority of that will be with the thunderstorms uh, this afternoon and into tomorrow. But generally we're looking at less than two millimetres about the southern agricultural area and most of that will be about the southern coasts and ranges. Uh, looking at two to ten millimetres generally across the north and west with local falls of ten to twenty millimetres north and west of about Cooper Pedy with some isolated falls of twenty to forty millimetres possible in the north and west of the northwest pastoral district and again that is mainly today. As we start looking at the outlook period from Tuesday to Thursday, we do have that trough uh, over the state. There's a bit of model uncertainty at this stage, but it is looking like we could see some showers and even possibly some thunderstorms developing about the west and south, uh, particularly later in the period. 
and temperature wise we're still looking at it being very hot in the north a uh, hot in the south but becoming milder about southern coastal districts as that change does extend through at this stage we haven't got uh, any warnings current uh, but keep watching our website uh, and we will continue to monitor those thunderstorms in the northwest of the state selena thanks for that hannah enjoy the rest of your day Thank you, you too. Hannah Marsh there, our forecaster today at the Weather Bureau. So let's take a look at the western inland of New South Wales. For the upper western district tomorrow, partly cloudy. There's a medium chance of showers in the north, a slight chance elsewhere, and there is a chance of a thunderstorm in the north part of that district as well. Light winds becoming northwest to southwesterlies, 15 to 25 k's now in the middle of the day. They'll lighten off by the evening. Overnight temperatures between 15 and 20, daytime temperatures in the high 20s. For the lower western district of New South Wales, partly cloudy, light winds becoming southwesterlies, 15 to 25 k's an hour in the middle of the day, and they'll lighten off towards the eve- late evening. Overnight temperatures there between 12 and 15, and in the day, those temperatures will reach up into the high 20s. It's just coming on to half past 12 here on the Country Hour. You're listening to The Country Hour. For more stories from across the country, go to abc.net.au slash rural. On ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill, this is Selena Green. Selena Green. And a very good afternoon. Coming up in this next half an hour, have you noticed a lot more rabbits around lately? Are you seeing more of them? Or maybe you're noticing the damage that they're causing. Do you reckon they've gotten worse in recent years? Let me know where they're causing any big problems. one 800 Or my text line is 0467-922-891. Apparently some wet years have made it a lot harder to control rabbits and their numbers have boomed. But there is hope that that will soon change. Now, rabbits can breed pretty much like 12 times a year. Um, and if you just look at the, the math, you know, one pair of rabbits can, can become 184 rabbits in one and a half years. So that's why we're seeing a surge. I mean, they cost around about $217 million a year. I think even though that's a staggering cost, it's still only 10% of what the cost would be if myxomatosis and Khaleesi virus had never been released. We'll find out why a move into drier conditions could be good news for those wanting to deal with the rabbit problem. Also coming up, Lions Clubs across the state are receiving livestock donated by farmers who can't sell them at market. And that, uh, well, they're then being processed for food bank to go to people in need. But that processing of the meat costs money. So you'll hear more about a fundraising exercise to help cover the expense. But before any of that, Let's get up to speed on the top news stories for the day. And for that, we cross to Matt Coleman. Hello, Matt. Hello, Selena. In the news this afternoon, a parliamentary inquiry has recommended wholesale changes to how Australia manages employment services, finding they're more focused on punishing unemployed people rather than helping them into meaningful work. The inquiry essentially says that the current system is unfit for purpose. It says privatised job agencies are incentivised to place unemployed people in any job as quickly as possible, and job seekers are harshly punished for failing to meet unproductive and unnecessary demands. 
The Weather Bureau's official summer outlook is for a scorching summer with all parts of the country strongly tipped for above average temperatures. Following Australia's driest ever September and October period and then a wet November, the rainfall signals have softened to a promise of more normal rain for much of the country from December to February. And the Playford Council will stop reading out an acknowledgement to country at its meetings. At its meeting on Tuesday night, there was a lengthy debate between councillors discussing a motion to revoke its policy of reading out the acknowledgement at the beginning of every meeting. The Northern Areas Council in the Mid-North also passed a motion this month to end the acknowledgement to country at its meetings. More news at one o'clock. Thank you, Matt. Matt Coleman there with those headlines. Well, for many people, cherries mean Christmas time. But in the Riverland, the season for this sweet red fruit is much earlier. In fact, some growers like Leon Kotsaris from Renmark have packed their last truck this week after finishing picking just before that big rain. Good timing. It follows a tough few seasons for growers in the region due to devastating storms and Queensland fruit fly. Mr Kotsaris told Eliza Berlage investing in netting has been a salvation in a season that was a bit earlier than normal. It was an earlier season than normal, but we normally finish by the end of November or the first week of December. Uh, So Christmas cherries don't come from the Riverland. So we know that Christmas cherries don't come from the Riverland, but where do your Riverland cherries go? Well, they go all over Australia at the moment because of fruit fly. Uh, We are restricted. We can't sell to Perth or Tasmania. But normally, uh, in a normal year without fruit fly, we'd be selling all over Australia. So at the moment, we have got accreditation for South Australia and the eastern states. That's pretty great. So you have been able to sell it locally here in the Riverland as well as to Adelaide and other places? No, no? Um, yeah. Local sales are restricted to some degree. We haven't even attempted to sell locally. The reason being is we've got to be very, very careful with uh, fruit fly. Although we can send to Adelaide under a CA32 agreement to sell locally, it requires a bit more paperwork, so we're not prepared to do that. Yeah, so the fruit fly issue has certainly been a, a challenge for your markets. A challenge is uh, an understatement. We've been on stepping on eggshells for the last three years because if there was a fruit fly outbreak on our property or very close by, it would make life very, very difficult for us. And I understand it's been a, a tough couple of years for yourself, Leon, and, and other cherry growers across Australia with you know, quite a lot of rainfall and, and some hail. Uh, you know, These storms have just come through the last few days, but you were, I imagine, relieved to, to pack up your final truckload before those storms hit. Uh, very relieved that we've finished. Cherries and rain are not a good combination. We, we can vouch for that because last year uh, we had a terrible year in terms of damage uh, caused by rain. It was a one-in-a-hundred-year event that we had last year and uh, certainly impacted on our production. Uh, this year we've been lucky uh, that we didn't get the rains and luckily we finished now before, any rain, uh, before the rains come. So you know, every year is a challenging year. Uh, next year it could be heat, uh, it could be hail. We've tried to uh, reduce our risk, so we, all our orchard is covered by net, uh, which will protect against hail. It'll protect against, to some degree, heat. It'll protect against wind, against birds. But what it can't protect is rain. Uh, You need um, special rain covers for that. And that, again, is another cost. So you've got to weigh all the risks. The Riverland normally is a low-risk area with regard to rain. And how how much damage did you get from rain last year? 
I don't really want to sort of go back against it, remember it, but I can tell you in some early varieties, uh, we were looking at uh, 50% or more losses, probably even more, because it, not only the loss, you have to go in there and, and spray chemicals to stop rot. Uh, you had, we had to employ people to pick off the fruit that was uh, damaged so it wouldn't spread disease. So you, you, you're adding on to the cost of production, cost of picking, uh, so it's not just what you lose in volume, you also have added costs that you've got to consider also. And yeah, you mentioned that rain covers could be um, quite expensive, so it's something you're not able to maybe invest in at this stage, but the um, the netting that you've been using um, to protect against other elements, you know, what sort of results and, and um, how beneficial has that investment been for you? Oh, look, uh, the nets themselves uh, this year showed very clearly that they're worth every cent. Our packouts were fantastic in terms of clean fruit because the nets protect against wind. They protect against hail, obviously. We didn't have a hail event this year. First year for a while that we haven't had any hail uh, that I'm aware of. Uh, the nets also helped in heat. They do reduce the effects of um, heat. And so the nets paid from th- themselves um, several times over this year. Have you been hearing from more cherry growers in terms of concerns about people leaving the industry with extreme weather or issues around climate change? I haven't myself firsthand, but you know there are growers in the Adelaide Hills that I'm, I'm uh, friends with and communicate with often. We have uh, people in Victoria that we also have contacts with. Some have got nets, others haven't. I know the Adelaide Hills growers, there's a lot of them have got nets and they have extra problems than we do. They have bats they have uh, rosella parrots that come in and chew off the buds before they've even flowered. So Adelaide Hills is really challenged in some areas of Adelaide Hills because of uh, those particular pests. Uh, we don't have bats or rosellas coming in, but we've got other bird pests too. We've got obviously extreme heat compared to the Adelaide Hills. So every place has got its own particular specific problems. But most people are saying that nets will not not solve everything, they're not a panacea for everything, but they will reduce some of the risks involved. And as we know with climate change, these events that are extreme, like hail, I mean, over the years that we've been growing cherries, we had one hail event in about 20 years that I've had, and in the last uh, three years we've had three hail events. So Mm -hmm. just on pure averages, you know, things are not looking too flash. And Leon, what sort of attracted you to growing cherry and keeps you growing them? (laughs) <laughs> maybe i love the punishment it's a challenge cherries shouldn't be growing in this area they're a challenge to grow because they are traditionally grown in cool climate they are a cool climate crop but i was looking for something different wine grapes have been great but as everybody knows now they're not so great and um, i didn't want to follow you know the herd and do the same thing like everybody else i wanted a challenge i got a challenge believe me it's taken me years to sort of put things together to grow cherries in this environment. But I think in the end, I'm quite happy with the outcome, even though it's very challenging every year. And do you plan to keep doing it for a while? Well, as long as I can. Uh, My son now is uh, now taking over the property. He's obviously younger than me. But I I still enjoy the challenge in growing cherries, even though we've had some failures and significant failures, but you never stop learning. And that's one of the things... You never, you're always going to learn something different. Every year is going to give you something about growing cherries or whatever crop you're growing. And if you don't learn from them, you'll never make success out of it. So I like the challenge. 
And I guess for all the challenges that cherries have, I imagine that the the price you might get for them would be better than wine grapes for some people. Oh, look, the price might be better than wine grapes, but uh, you're picking them one by one. Uh, Your costs of labour are huge. You don't have a machine coming in just belting a vine to get the uh, wine grapes off. This is where you've got to get pickers in there that are very careful, that treat those trees uh, very um, with kid gloves. And, um, you know, so there's a lot of costs with cherries associated. So you've got to pay for that cost. You've got to get your return. If you don't, no one will grow cherries. And was Uh, it hard to get labour for it? uh, I think we're very lucky in the Riverland uh, because we have our labour that's used for uh, picking oranges. And as they finish picking uh, the last variety, I think it's Valencia's, uh, then they'll move straight across to cherries and blueberries and so on. And then from after cherries, they'll move into apricots. So it's very handy for us because I know in other districts of the eastern states, trying to get labour is almost impossible. As Renmark cherry grower Leon Kotsaris, and he was speaking there to Eliza Berlage. This is ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Here with Selena Green on this Thursday, it's 19 minutes to one. Are you overrun by rabbits at your place at the moment? There were concerns a couple of years back that the wetter seasons would see a boom in Australia's rabbit populations. With increased vegetation around, less chance for successful biocontrols, they've been breeding like, well, rabbits. But with forecast drier El Nino weather conditions ahead, it may give landholders a chance to fight back. I spoke with the Centre for Invasive Species Solutions Chief Executive, Andreas Glansnick, and asked if there were signs that rabbit numbers were up. We know both from a number of anecdotal reports that rabbit numbers are up, and the challenge then is that the rabbits are taking advantage of the good times through the, the La Nina phase. Uh, and on top of that, what sort of challenged uh, a lot of land managers is that rabbit biocontrol agents can generally only be released when there's no young rabbits uh, around, given that uh, rabbits under 10 weeks of age aren't killed by uh, Khaleesi virus, which is our most important rabbit biocontrol agent. And the challenge then is that if rabbits are continually breeding throughout the year, it makes it very difficult to find a slot to successfully release a rabbit biocontrol agent so it can kill the old rabbits but not inadvertently immunise young rabbits. So um, rabbit numbers are up, um, both due to uh, La Nina and good times and also just because a lot of land managers haven't been able to use um, rabbit biocontrol agents like um, K5 and so on. Mm, So perfect conditions for rabbits to get out there and breed like rabbits, basically. The more vegetation, the happier they are, the more they'll just keep breeding away? Oh, look, absolutely. And and look, it's important to realise that rabbits can breed pretty much like 12 times a year. Um, and if you just look at the, the math, you know, one pair of rabbits can, can become 184 rabbits in one and a half years. So that's where we're seeing a surge. So I think that just to sort of take a step back, um, you know, rabbits are, are cause immense damage to Australian wildlife and ecosystems, um, pastures, crops and so on. Um, I mean, they cost around about $217 million a year. Um, but I think even though that's a staggering cost, it's still only 10% of, of what the cost would be if myxomatosis and Khaleesi virus had never been released. So biocontrol is, is playing a huge part in, in suppressing rabbit numbers uh, nationally. 
Um, that said, though, they still cause a lot of environmental impacts. I mean, they impact uh, around about 322 nationally listed threatened species, uh, and and some species like she oaks, uh, mulga, are incredibly sensitive to rabbit sort of damage. And so you only need like you know one rabbit per hectare, or even one rabbit per two hectares, and um, and you're already causing damage to. Uh, those very sensitive native species. So I think that you know the the important point is that we're seeing um, the phase turning from a La Nina into an El Nino um, cycle, and that actually creates opportunities for rabbit control. Yeah, so that that is, uh, I guess, the, as you say, the next point. We are coming into these warmer, drier now conditions. Uh, maybe not so good for lots of other aspects, but uh, for rabbit control, that then does hopefully open up that window to try and claw back some control on these numbers? Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, and I think the, the real sort of general rule is, is not to release biocontrol agents like K5 when there's young rabbits around. Um, so generally, the rule of thumb was, is that you'd release it around about April um, each year um, so that you can you know, basically knock down um, rabbit populations without uh, inadvertently immunising the young rabbits. Uh, and, and I think the reason I'm sort of making that point is that there was a national survey undertaken a couple of years ago by uh, Dr Pat Taggart from New South Wales DPI and, and it came up with a staggering result which was um, he found with his colleagues that, that three quarters of, of land managers um, didn't follow the release guidelines for rabbit Khaleesi virus uh, and in fact you know there was numerous instances where land managers were releasing K5 during the peak rabbit breeding season. And as I said before, what you're then doing is you're shooting yourself in the foot because you're you're killing the older rabbits, but um, you're immunising the the young rabbits. And so therefore, you're you're actually taking one step forward, two steps back. So the the El Nino sort of phase provides some gaps where there aren't young rabbits in the landscape and then that's the ideal time to release uh, a rabbit biocontrol agent like K5 and as I said a rule of thumb is that you're looking at early autumn so that, you know you're looking at that March April window as a as a good time for release if used correctly i mean how effective are the control measures available in, in australia do we have enough tools in the in the toolbox look I, I think it comes down to i mean there's two ways to answer that question i mean first is as i said like Rabbit biocontrol agents are already suppressing rabbit numbers by about 90%. So a $217 million problem for agriculture would be a $2 billion problem if it wasn't for biocontrol. Um, That said is that biocontrol agents, they do sort of tend to wane off in their impact over time. So, you know, both myxomatosis and Khaleesi virus, when they were first released, were, were killing you know, well over 9 in 10 rabbits. So, like, Mixo was up to 99% of rabbits. Um, but where we are now, uh, with sort of the, the new variants that have come into the country, such as RHDV2 uh, and also K5, uh, you saw, say, with, with RHDV2, which came through and, and our sort of national monitoring with state governments sort of indicated a, around about a 60% knockdown, um, which is you know, very significant, but it still means that there's still a lot of rabbits in the landscape causing damage. So the point is that rabbit biocontrol agents aren't silver bullets. Um, they need to be used as part of an integrated approach, uh, which includes you know, basically chemical control, um, 
warren ripping and so on. Uh, and you've got to take that sort of integrated approach if you're going to have a, a sustained impact and control of rabbits um, over time. And the second point then is just making sure that with those tools that they're used at the, you know, at the right time so you don't end up with a, you know, a well-intended intervention that ends up with a, a bad outcome, um, such as immunising young rabbits. That's Andreas Glansnick there. He is the Chief Executive of the Centre for Invasive Species Solutions. Well, Leslie Loxton is one property owner who's been struggling to control increasing rabbit populations. She says her 30-acre farm at Compton in the southeast is overrun. She's been desperately trying to get some help from the local landscape board. I have always had some rabbits, but I think they get worse every year. And there's, there's just... Like, it's unmanageable now because they're, they're just so destructive. Even with Mixie, that came through and that wiped out some, but they came back stronger than ever. And how's it affecting your property? <laughs> it's making it dangerous. <laughs> like, my hay shed, I mean, they get in, they burrow under, they come up in the hay and they eat the hay and the ground in the hay shed's not level anymore so it's really hard walking over that area in the hay shed. I've put carpet down but they come up, there's mounds of sand where the hay bales sort of, and they cover the hay bales in sand. In my yard there's rabbit diggings everywhere and, and I'm like elderly, need a hip replacement and a, and a knee replacement. So I have to be very careful walking in my yard because of all the rabbit diggings that occur there. So you need you know. some assistance to get on top of this issue. It's not something you can tackle all by yourself, is oh, that right? No, no. The brickwork of the paving area of my house, like in the carport and where I walk to check the um electricity meter, like that's all caving in and, and where I park the car and have to walk with my groceries because they've burrowed under the house, um, which part of the house is very, it's only big enough for a rabbit one end and that's where they've got into and I can't get to them. Um, so yeah, and ring marking my fruit trees in the house yard, in the wood pile, uh, in the woodshed, like in the sheds up here on the hill, uh, not the one with the cement floor but the other one with the dirt where I store the loosened hay, they've burrowed in under there and they destroy the hay and they squat, you know, we and poo on the hay and, yeah, and sing me money. That's Leslie Loxton from Compton there, which is just outside of Mangambia. She was speaking there with Nick Ward. But I did actually have a chance to pop out to Leslie's uh, property and take some photos of some of the damage uh, that she was talking about there. And, yeah, rabbits everywhere and the damage is just extraordinary. Um, a huge job uh, ahead to try and, and deal with that. Uh, and, yeah, Leslie says she really needs some help. She needs to reach out to the local landscape board to try and uh, get some assistance dealing with those rabbits. If you want to see those photos and read more about this, uh, keep an eye on the ABC Rural website. There will be a story up later today, abc.net.au forward slash rural. On the text line, this uh, text simply reads, we have a fabulous rabbit control mechanism at our property on the Air Peninsula. It's our Jack Russell. It is... Nine minutes to one. Last year, ABC Gives raised an amazing $1.5 million for Australians in need. This year, we're teaming up again with our charity partners to raise that amount and more. 
to help people in your local community struggling to cope with rising living costs. There's big need out there and Australians have big hearts and generous spirits. So join with us and help brighten your community. ABC Gives. Head to abc.net.au slash gives to donate today. And hello to Mary, who's also just popped up on the text line. Mary's text reads, I'm happy to lend out my cat who kills at least one rabbit a day. She says, I live in Mount Barker. And since I got this rescue cat, our rabbit numbers have dropped dramatically. Uh, well, speaking of ABC Gives, of course, yes, this morning right across the ABC in South Australia, we've been helping to collect food and monetary donations for Food Bank to help those in need. You might have heard on the Country Hour before about a program with Lions Clubs across the state where farmers can donate livestock that they can't sell at market. Now, these animals are then processed into products like mints for Food Bank. But that is a costly process. It's about $100 an animal to have the meat processed. And the Lions District 201C1, it set a target of raising $100,000 for the project. Alan Zerner is from the Cow Lions Club. He told Brooke Neindorf it's been a successful project so far with some very generous donations. Oh, well, it's been going very well, Brooke. We've had an excess of, well, they're saying meals. Well, they turn you do forget about the number of sheep. It turns into meals. At this stage, about 27,000 meals they've donated, which uh, I think it works out around about 300 sheep or something like that, I think, has been donated and processed uh, at Cummins. The problem we've got, though, is we've got more sheep than we've got money to process. Unfortunately, we, we can only process what we've got the money to do. So we're asking anyone from the public or the SP of the Lions Club uh, just to contact our Cabinet Treasurer, which is a chap called Tony Pedrick. Uh, it's, so far, it's been some very generous donations. The Richmond Club in Adelaide have donated $15,000. The Glenside Club, 5000 And there's been about 10500 from other clubs around, including the Kimber one as well. That's, that's where the project is instigated from at this stage. And uh, so that's, uh, you know, in excess of 30000 So that's over 300 sheep. Uh, at this stage, that have been processed. So, and that's uh, just that's just on the Air Peninsula Island. That's just on Air Peninsula, yes. Yeah, yeah. and because it's it's yeah. it's sort of a and there's farmers statewide that have been contributing to uh, to this food bank um, project. Well, a few years ago, the district that's sort of south of Anzac Highway and the southeast and up through the Riverland, they run a very similar project a few years ago, and in fact they are still running it. But I just heard this morning on the radio that the Mount Gambia Club have, are actually taking it over now and are processing sheep, uh, but they tend to be doing more uh, cuts of meat, like roasts and legs, whereas what we've concentrated over here is uh, just mince meat, uh, because that way farmers can donate uh, a sheep that's got no commercial value, so you know sometimes you know, it's got a gammy front leg, you know, and, you, <clears throat> and it, um, it goes, uh, goes in the charlie yard, and of course, you know, 100 sheep there, bar one, you know, so the farmer's sent it there for nothing because he doesn't get paid for it and often gets a bill to dispose of it. So if he leaves it on the farm, uh, rather than have to dispose of it himself or themselves, they can, you know, donate it to the Lions Club and um, they'll get a reasonable amount of mints out of it. And, and because farmers, uh, because farmers, Alan, would then usually just have, yeah, like you said, have to dispose of them themselves if they, that, um, if they can't sell them. That's right, yeah. I mean, rather, I mean, like, they hang around, hang around, eventually they'll, around to disposing of themselves and then of course they've got to then do something with the body they got to bury the body or, or do something with it or you know it, well, I suppose some cut it up for dog meat as well but 
uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, and, and most are happy to do it. And, and the local lines club of which we've got, oh, well, eight on Air Peninsula, I suppose, we, you know, we're quite happy to go around and pick up the sheep and put them somewhere until we take them to Cummins uh, to be processed, yeah. And so once they're processed, it goes uh, locally, um, Alan? No, well, food bank, food bank pick it up. It goes through the food bank organisation. They'll pick it up from they pick it up from Cummins. The, it's all already packed up in mints. They pick it up and then they distribute that to wherever they think it needs to be, whether Port Lincoln, maybe Sojourner, I think, and Wyala. And it's, I guess, like you mentioned this before about um, an option for farmers to be able to um, make use of of their their livestock that they might not be able to sell, but with such low prices for um, uh, for livestock at the moment as well, Alan. I guess it it's sort of a, a little bit of a silver lining that it can go to a good cause. That's right. Yeah. Uh, the only stipulation is that they've got to be a reasonable size. You know, they don't want to be uh, processing something that's only going to get yeah you know, fifteen kilograms of meat out out of them because it takes the same amount of money to process a, a sheep that's going to get 25 kilograms of bits out of than what it does to process one that you only get 15 kilograms. It's still much the same price, you know, but, so it just adds to, you know, adds to the price of, the, of what they get. So the heavier the better, that's what we're saying, and uh, most farmers at this day and age, well, the way the prices have been, you know, I've heard of people sending quite good sheep to a market and virtually... Paying their freight, yeah. So uh, only paying their freight, I should say. So that's a bit of a waste. Yeah. Alexander, we've been uh, talking about food bank and, and how people can help uh, all morning on on a, the ABC. And there's been collections of, of cans and, and food products and, and all sorts right across the uh, the state. If people want to get involved, either with like you said, um, monetary donations to make it easier to process this meat, or if they're a farmer that's got a, a, a you know a sheep or maybe a, um, a cow to, to donate, how can they get involved? Uh, well, I think um, probably the best thing is. Uh Contact your local Lions Club. I think uh, everyone should know where they are on Air Peninsula, especially, and then they scatter through the Mid North as well. Or uh, bring uh, the uh, treasurer, the cabinet treasurer, because that's where the money goes to. It goes to Adelaide, and then he puts it on a separate fund. Then, just uh, as the sheep come into the uh, abattoir, the processor, he just gives them the money for whatever sheep come in. You see, at the moment, we've, there's a little bit of surplus at the moment in the fund. Uh, we've got. I think there's about 50 sheep to go down this week, I think. So that'll take care of uh, about $5,000. Uh, and then uh, there's still a bit left over after that, which will you know, be more sheep. I'm pretty sure there's more sheep to go, but it's just that you can only process so many per week anyway. Alan Zerner there from the Cow Lions Club speaking with Brooke Neindorf. If you'd like to help out their project there, uh, as Alan said, the easiest way is to get in touch with your local Lions Club. Uh, and, yes, we are still continuing. Uh, ABC gives coverage throughout the day, uh, so you can keep an eye out for uh, any of the ABC team out on their outside broadcasts and maybe keep your eyes out for Sonia Feldoff because she'll be continuing our coverage this afternoon and she'll be broadcasting from the food bank in Edwardstown this afternoon. Uh, if you would like to be part of uh, this great project, raising funds for food bank, and we've heard a lot today about the need, uh, head to the ABC Gives website, abc.net.au forward slash SA Gives. I've been Selena Green. Thanks so much for your company today. It's one o'clock news time. Lend us your ears. Download the ABC Listen app and find all our audio in one handy place. Tap on the ABC radio icon and go to our station page.
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.